All right, tonight uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter number 22. And tonight I want to talk about matters of the heart. But in Matthew 22, verse number 33, it says, The crowds were profoundly impressed by his answers, but not the Pharisees. When they heard that he had routed the Sadducees with his reply, in other words, he shut them up with his answers, they thought up a fresh question of their own to ask him. One of them, a lawyer, spoke up, Sir, which is the most important command in the laws of Moses? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second most important is similar. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets stem from these two laws and are fulfilled if you obey them. Keep only these and you will find that you are obeying all the other laws. In case you didn't know, uh, he's not referring to the Ten Commandments in the Jewish uh, custom and the Jewish religion. He's referring to the ones that they took upon themselves to add. All the other 600 plus that they added to the ten. But he says that if you keep this, then you're keeping all of them. These two. It's amazing that. We, we always have to make things so much harder than God set out. He says one thing, and we just add our own little list to it. And then we demand people to obey that list. And then we find out that when, when they're tormenting themselves and they find themselves conflicted within for no reason at all. In fact, the Bible says that they placed a burden on the people. Sometimes our traditions become burdens. But we want to hold on to our traditions. Because we're much more interested in what we do than who we are. So the law that he's referring to here is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's turn to that. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, we know that each of them bear the name of the message that they carry. Genesis is the Hebrew word for beginning. Leviticus is a Levitical priesthood being set up. Exodus was their miraculous exit out of Egypt. Deuteronomy means the second time. So he's giving them the law the second time because they didn't get it the first time. And actually it goes beyond that because with the number two, he's dealing also with a new generation, a second generation, because only three people from the former generation were still alive by the time they made it out of the wilderness. All others died. Now, the reason they had to be in the wilderness for 40 years is not because that's the time that God said that you had to be in your test. The reason is God made a covenant with them. He said, I'll, I'll deliver you. You won't have to suffer illnesses and the diseases that your enemies suffer. So what God did, he waited for every last one of them to die natural deaths. 
They didn't die except for the rare occasions of when they fornicated and he killed 23 or 24,000 at a time. And other times when they worshiped, they, he opened up the ground and, and swallowed 12,000. But other than that, he waited for a whole generation to die a natural death because he had already promised them that I'm not going to kill you with these other diseases that your enemies are going to suffer from. So that's the thing that took the 40 years for them to die. That's an amazing thing to have to sit and wait for your punishment. But here he comes to the second generation and says, all right, now what they didn't get right, I'm going to give you a chance to get right. And the, the problem that we have in sometimes in Christianity today is that we, we have a hard time with the second generation being able to drop all of the bad habits of the first generation. And it takes much courage and a, and a lot of stick in order to reach out to God for yourself and say, well, what my parents did ain't working for me. Second generation, he's the God of second chances. So in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, he says here, the Lord your God told me to give you all these commandments which you are to obey in the land you will soon be entering where you will live. The purpose of these laws, listen to the purpose, is to cause you, your sons and your daughters, I'm sorry, your sons and your grandsons to reverence the Lord your God by obeying all of his instructions as long as you live. If you do, you will have long, prosperous years ahead of you. Therefore, O Israel, listen closely to each command and be careful to obey it so that all will go well with you and so that you will have many children. If you obey these commands, you will become a great nation in a glorious land flowing with milk and honey, even as the God of your fathers has promised you. So he ties promises to obedience. And of course, with the promise attached to obedience, there's also the penalty for disobedience. But you don't have to worry about the penalty if you just simply obey. Verse number four says, O Israel, listen, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah alone. You must love him with all your heart, soul, and might. And you must think constantly about these commandments I am giving you today. This is the verse that Jesus is telling the Pharisees now. You must teach them to your children and talk about them when you are at home or out for a walk, at bedtime and the first thing in the morning. Tie them on your finger, wear them on your forehead, and write them on the doorpost of your house. All right, so Moses is giving them the commands. Now, when he says this, this is not a command. When he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the, the Lord is one, that's not a command. That's just a statement of fact. But it's such an important statement of fact because your love for him is going to be predicated on who he is. So Moses is giving them a foundation for them to build their obedience on because God is not a because I said so God. Now we came up in the day, well, you got to do A, B, and C, D. Well, mama, why? Because I said so. That is really not how God, God is very clear in his word. He gives a lot of explanation. He says here, I want you to obey these laws because the purpose of this law is to. So with our children, I try and sometimes I think my wife goes a little overboard. Boy, she be 
she be breaking stuff down for Zoe. She has her prepared. But I like it because we didn't have that preparation sometimes growing up. Our parents said something. We don't know why they said it or why they did it. But to give an explanation will cause that child to start to get it in their mind. So when they get older, they won't just be doing stuff, you know, to be doing it. Because the dangerous thing about that, well, I I survived all my whippings with extension cords and telephone cords and switches. And I live, so you're going to be all right. So we tell them, beat them kids. And and we, we create the same circle. And we don't stop to think that I still have animosity over that. Israel's faith here, we must pay attention to the Shema because it's so important. It is the birth of our faith in Christ. There are three things to consider here. Number one, he says, the Lord. Now, the name that he uses here for Lord is not the same name that he uses in Genesis 1 and 1 where he says, in the beginning, God created. The word God in that verse is Elohim. But here, when he presented himself to Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, my name is Jehovah. I am El Shaddai. I'm the self-sufficient one. I'm going to give you a reward. Then he comes down and gives the name Jehovah. Now, Jehovah becomes a title that becomes a covenant name for God. This is why we serve Jesus. His name is Yeshua, meaning Jehovah saves. That means that there is a covenant attached to the name of God. So, and, and we love to, he's Jehovah Jireh, and he's Jehovah Zikanu, and he's Jehovah Elroy, and he's all these different titles. Is because God has a lot of covenants that he's made with us, and he will not break them. So the name that he uses here is a name of relationship. It's not a name of creation. Because when he got through all of his creation, he said all of this was good. But when he created man, he said it's very good. Why? Because now there is an image of myself in my creation. And he made it clear that it was not good that man should be alone. So I'm giving man a wife. So right at the beginning, at the bearer sheet, right at the genesis of things, he is in a mode of relationship. So we don't just try to serve God. And I'm so glad I don't drink no more. And I'm so glad I don't cuss no more. And I got the victory. But what is your relationship like? There's so many relationships in the Bible that God, especially in Christianity, he's our elder brother. He's our father. He's our groom. He's our friend. He stepped into these roles in order to show us what a father, what a son, what a friend ought to be like. I don't understand how a wife or a husband cannot get along with their spouse and then turn around and talk about what such a wonderful lover God is. No, you can't do that. You can't talk about the, the, the loving savior in a, in a position of a wife or a husband to you if you don't know how to get along with your own spouse. That's the simple thing in the Bible now. You can't go through life ignoring your kids and just 
kicking them to the curb and abusing them and then turn around and talk about what a wonderful father God is to you and how much of a wonderful father you want him to be. Because then you got to ask the question, what if God was the type of father that I am to my children? What if God is the type of mother that I am to my children? What if God was the type of wife that I am to my husband or the type of husband that I am to my wife? Then how would you feel? So we're in relationship now. The second thing he says, the Lord, our God. Now he puts himself in relationship to God. He's just not a God out there somewhere. That song says, up above my head, I hear music in the air. Somewhere out there. It ought to be somewhere in you. He has chosen in purpose to become a personal savior to us. And then he said, he's one. That means that there is no seeking of help and solace and comfort and relationship outside of him. Natalie broke it down earlier with, in Gethsemane that and I was tell I told Angie, I believe that God put the, the disciples into a deep sleep while Jesus was praying in Gethsemane. Sort of like he did when he caused Adam to go to sleep when he drew Eve out of his side. So that when Jesus came to his disciples, they wouldn't be able to help him in the time of need because he wanted Jesus to go back in prayer and depend on him. So he's one. It's not just a number. It's about him being your only source of power, your only source of strength, your only source of comfort. He is the only one. Now, the foundation here in chapter four of Deuteronomy, he gives this second generation the history of the first generation. He tells them the Lord brought them out with a mighty hand. He performed all these miracles. He did A, B, C and D. Then he gets to chapter five and then he says, but I want to talk about the right now. See, sometimes we talk about the yesteryear. We'd love to talk about 1906 in Azusa Street when the Lord poured the Holy Ghost out and all that stuff. And they were working miracles and doing stuff and folks getting healed and folks as shadows walking by. But what is he doing now? You, you got to have a right now testimony. I can't live off of my grandfather's testimony. I'm glad God delivered him. I need a God to deliver me. So this generation was tied to God through what he had done with their parents. But now he wants to personalize himself to them in a different way. Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says, Moses continued speaking to the people, verse number 1 of Israel, and said, listen carefully now to all these laws God has given you. Learn them and be sure to obey them. The Lord your God made a contract with you at the Mount of Horeb, not with your ancestors. <laughs> now, he's telling these folk that were babies when Moses came and gave the law that God was giving the contract to you. <laughs> But Lord, I was just six months old. That's how early he starts working with you. He wasn't waiting 40 years for them to become 40 years old and then say, okay, well, this first generation didn't work, so let me go to plan B. Well, now I'm going to turn to y'all. No. 
he knew what was in the heart of the first generation. He knew that although he brought them out of Egypt, Egypt was already, it was in their heart. In fact, Jewish history tells us that even though they came out of Egypt, they had kept little wood carvings in their pocket, so to speak. They hid those in their garments. They kept them, the idols on themselves. And, but while they were holding on to their idols, they're telling Moses, oh, we'll obey everything that God does. But I'm, I'm going to hold on to this just for safekeeping. So when I feel like I'm in a corner, I still have my vice to go to. He had their actions, but he didn't have their heart. He said, the, the people that speak to me and they, they tell me how great I am. He said, they serve me with their lips. But their heart is so far, I can't find it. And I'm a God that is everywhere. It's bad when an omniscient uh, God can't find your heart. Because we've hid it from him. And it's tied to the will. So he has to honor free will because that's his plan. The heart is the seat of our affections and emotions. And if I had time, this actual thing of matters on the heart would probably be about 10 messages long. Because I can't get really deep into it. But I'm going to do what I can tonight. The heart is the center not only of spiritual activity, but of all the operations of human life. The heart is the home of the personal life. And hence, a man is designated according to his heart. In other words, the Bible says that when he says that you're wise or that you're pure, upright, righteous, pious, and good, he says he always ties that to the heart. The heart is also the seat of the conscious. The heart and the intellect are closely connected. The heart being the seat of intelligence. Matthew 13 says, for these people, this people's heart has waxed gross. Lest at any time they should understand with their heart and should be converted. The understanding that you're going to be converted by has to take place in your heart. But it's tied to the intellect. The heart is connected with thinking. Proverbs 23 tells us that as a person thinketh in his heart, so is he. The conscious decision is made from the heart. Let's get Romans 6 and 17. For this one, I think I want to read the King James. It says, but God be thanked that you are the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So when you obey that form of doctrine, that doctrine of salvation of the new birth that he's talking about, it has to be obeyed from the heart. Now, you can't be saved without first, like Jesus said, he that believeth on me as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. 
When Paul rehearsed it in, I believe, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Now, brother, you know how we preach Christ to you and how he suffered and died according to the scriptures and how he was raised from the dead and ascended on high according to the scriptures. He always goes back to what the Bible says about Christ. So without the knowledge of Christ, then it doesn't matter what you conform to in the physical realm. If your heart wasn't in it, God didn't recognize it. So we don't want to be a people that just obeys a bunch of rules and our heart is not into who God is and what he does. We know that according to Genesis 8 and 21, that the heart is naturally wicked and hence it contaminates the whole life and character. Let's run through a couple of scriptures real quick. Matthew, let's get Genesis 8 and 21 first. Genesis 8 and 21. It says, and Jehovah was pleased with the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never do it again. I will never again curse the earth, destroying all living things, even though man's bent is always toward evil from his earliest youth. And even though he does such wicked things, the King James Version says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground in any anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So we see that the reason that he destroyed the earth was because he came and looked down. And he said that, that the imagination of their heart was continually and it was only evil. There was no mixture of evil and good in this generation when he destroyed the earth. He said it was only evil continually. But then he says, here's that even though it's still only evil continually, he says, I'm making a covenant to never destroy it again. It didn't mean that man wasn't was no longer evil. The evil wasn't fixed in the world. God changed his heart. Matthew 12 and 34. Says, oh, generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. <laughs> out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Chapter 15, verse number 18 says, But those things which proceed out of, out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, I thought you steal with your hands. No, you steal with your heart. False witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Now he, they came to him. Gee, why don't your disciples wash their hands? It's a custom. It's, it's a Jewish custom. You're supposed to be a rabbi. Teach them how to wash their hands and teach them all the laws of, uh, of, of clean living. He said, your hands might be clean, but your heart is filthy. But this is, this is what Jesus is telling them. That you're worried about the outside. You look saved. I've heard that. They look so sanctified. They wore all their white. They look nice and sanctified. They had white shoes and white stockings and white dresses and white hats. and They look so saved. There ain't nowhere in the scripture that said wearing white make you look saved. And with some of the most bitter folk, 
just mean. Hate it going up in church. The, the, the old folks are mean. So, but the heart must be changed or regenerated before a man can willingly obey God. Since the heart is the center of all of the operations of human life, we must realize that in most of what we do and say, we put our hearts into it. However subconscious it may be. Most of the time when you find something to do, your heart is into that thing. Yeah, when it ain't done right, boy, you, you, you get upset, you lose sleep over it, you lose rest. Because your heart is into that thing. But there is a danger in this, though. Now, let's get Jeremiah 17, and now let's get into what the problem is. Verse number 9 says, The heart is the most deceitful thing there is, and desperately wicked. No one can really know how bad it is. Only the Lord knows. He searches all hearts and examines the deepest motives so he can give to each person his right reward according to his deed, how he has lived. So here, now we're dealing with something because we're commanded to love God with something that the Bible now lets us know is deceitful. He says, love the Lord with your whole heart. Then he turned on and said, but your heart is deceitful. So the heart will pursue what it thinks it needs. This is how so many of us have had our hearts broken. We chase the wrong thing with our hearts. And in the end, our hearts were broken. And this is deceit, the deceitful heart's way of steering itself into idolatry. In essence, our hearts have a way of worshiping falsely and then turning it around and labeling it as true worship of the true God. Because your heart is deceitful, it can trick you into worshiping something that you think is the true and living God. And you far from it. You didn't miss the whole thing. I don't doubt that the Pharisees and Sadducees thought that they were really right with God. They were devout. They followed what they thought was given to them by their ancestors with their full heart. These weren't folk that, that were just out living lineal kind of life. They weren't hoeing around the streets. These were people that taught in the synagogue. The people came to them with their problems. But their heart had missed God a long time ago. If you go back, while Moses was with the first generation, he's up there getting the mind of God. He tells them, all right, y'all stay down here since you don't want to go to talk to God yourself. I'll go and do it for you. But while he's up there about to lose his life because he's about to see the hinder part of God. And the Bible says you, you, that's the closest to death you will ever come when you get to see God. And these folk then went and made their own God. And said, all right, now, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. But when they said, this is the God, they used the right name. They said, this is Yahweh. They put God's true name on their false God. So because I liked the beat of the music and the sisters sang that song so well and it made me run around the building. 
That meant God was there. That didn't mean God was there. That meant that you were happy or emotional. I got goosebumps. Well, let's turn the air conditioner down low enough. You'll get goosebumps again. Don't falsely label something as truly God unless it's really him. Because if it's really him, your yoke would be destroyed. You're not going to come back next week with the same yoke. I've seen folk get in the same prayer line every week with the same problem. What are you doing? If you get under the true anointing, get somewhere and worship God, allow him to love you. And that thing will be destroyed. So my heart tells me and convinces me that my actions are indicative of my love and affection for God. But am I being deceived without knowing it? He's the one that searches. And in his search, he's the only one that could say, yes, you're all right. And no, you're not. Now, over the years, we have always said she really loves the Lord. That brother really loves God. Why? Well, because he's at every service. He opens the door. He stays through the service. He waits for the saints to go home and he closes and locks up the church. He loves God. Then we wonder why their children three years later is somewhere strung out on drugs because he was at the church and he wasn't fulfilling his ministry. He didn't love God. He loved the program. He loved the tent. He loved the tabernacle. He loved the robes that the priests wear. He didn't love God. So although Jeremiah 17 and 10 tells us that God knows the true sentiment of our hearts, it only tells us that he gives just rewards. It doesn't go into the correcting of the heart. Romans 1 and 24 describes how God gave them up through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies. Now, This is where God has given me insight because we go into Romans 1 and we talk about homosexuality and we could preach against it, man, and we could do all this stuff. But the Bible says here in Romans 1, if you read it, he said it was through the lust of their heart. It wasn't the lust of the flesh and it wasn't the lust of the eye. That means this was a worship matter. This was not an action matter. This was not a behavioral thing. He gave them up because their hearts were lustful. They lusted after things to worship. My God. So the heart must be regenerated or made all over again. It cannot simply just be changed. We can't redress it. We can't reshape the heart. We can't rename the heart. We can't relabel it. He must make us all over again a new lump. Ezekiel 11 and 19 says, I will give you one heart and a new spirit. I will take from you your hearts of stone and give you tender hearts of love for God so that you can obey my laws and be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36 and 26 says, and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new and right desire and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take out your stony hearts of sin and give you new hearts of love. And I will put my spirit within you so that you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. And you shall live in Israel, the land which I gave your fathers long ago. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. So this is a give and take relationship. But God is the one that's doing all the giving and all the taking. He takes your stony heart and he gives you a heart of flesh. Too many of us have tried to change our hearts and then present them to God. Lord, look what I did to my heart. Now, will you receive this? Well, Lord, I I, I put down the pipe. Lord, I, I quit smoking cigarettes. I reshaped my heart for you. He's saying, I, that's the same heart. <laughs> it's the same heart. You just redesigned it a little bit. You put in new flooring. You painted the wall. It's the same house. And if you were to try to put that house on the market, a true inspector would know that even though the paint, the, the paint is new, it's mildew all behind the walls. You can't sell. You ain't going to get 365 for this house. You may get 200000 So the value becomes less because you dressed up your heart for God. You're losing value. So we just can't change our heart. You got to have a new heart. But there's only one place to get a new heart. There's no black market for new hearts. There's no eBay for new hearts. There's no Craigslist for a pure heart. There's no acting school for a new heart. I'm just going to hang around the Satan and find out how I ought to mimic in church. So everybody has the same little dance step. Everybody got the same little. You learned how to make your heart look like the next heart. You didn't go to the manufacturer of hearts and get your own. He says in Jeremiah 18, so I went to the potter's house. I went to the I went to the house that made the man that made it. He knew how to make it from scratch. That's the one I went to. And sure enough, the potter was there. If you search for God, surely he's going to be there. Because he said, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. But are we seeking? Are we knocking? Are we thirsting? He that thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. So he was there. And when I saw him, he was working something. The minute that you search for God, you'll find out. He's been at work the whole time. He wasn't there getting stuff arranged on the table. He was already in in the mix of the, the fact that you came to him. When you took the first step, the wheel started to turn. Say, oh, my son just turned his heart. I, I don't see him coming with my eye, but I can sense that his heart has just turned to me. So let me start working with his heart. And by the time he get here, I'll have a heart for him. 
And whenever the pot the potter was working on turned out badly, as sometimes happens when you're working with clay, when you're working with clay, stuff going to go wrong sometimes. <laughs> it's it's going to go wrong. The potter would simply start over and use the same clay to make another pot. All right, let's get, let me read that in the King James because I like the verbiage that he makes here. Let's see, Jeremiah 18. Y'all mind if I take my time with this? Wouldn't it be something if we had somebody honest? Come on now, I got somewhere to go. Hurry up. <laughs> Summarize it. <laughs> If you got to go, we understand. But we, we were here today and I, and I saw a new heart being formed. We witnessed today a new heart being formed. Verse number four, the King James says, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemeth good to the potter to make it. Now he's got this in his hand. Place yourself in the hand of God. Now the vessel didn't come marred out in the world somewhere. It was in his hand when it got marred. Some of us have been jacked up in his hand. We became marred in his hand. Because that's just the stress of what I'm going through. That's the pain that I'm feeling. The pain marred who I was. But I'm still in his hand. You need to take comfort in the fact that I'm still at least in his hand. So we can't preach a gospel that says when you become marred in his hand, he throws you away. He just gets rid of this thing ain't worth a dime. But what does he do? So he made it again. Listen to the verbiage of the King James because he, there's a double positive here. He made it. That's one creation. Again. That's another one. Then he says. Another made it again. Another created a second time, but new. Another vessel. He he made me a new person. I, I don't know how he did it, because I look the same physically. But as I go through life and I worship him with every worship experience, he's making it over again another vessel. And it's as it seems good to him. It may not seem good to you what he's doing to me, but it seems good to him. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but he's the potter. And the Bible says, what kind of vessel got the nerve to look at the potter and say, what are you doing to me? You got to be crazy to look at your maker and who knows your end from your beginning and, and question him on what he's doing to you. I'm doing my good pleasure. That's what I'm doing. 
Now we've got to allow the Holy Ghost to, to work in us. The Bible says, now it is him that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He knows what he wants, but he's waiting for me to will and to want to do what he wants. There's a king in your Bible. We talk about the, the wickedness of Saul. We talk about his fall and his disobedience and the, how, how God came to him and God told him, you're, you're, you're as bad as a witch. But let's talk about the good Saul here. In 1 Samuel 10, verse number 9, it says, And it was so that when he, well, let me set this up. The prophet Samuel came and said, Saul, God has anointed you to be king. He, he's given this to you. You don't deserve it. It ain't nothing about you that that's good. But because, and he's really not doing this for you, Saul. He's doing this for the people that he loved because the people said, well, everybody else got a king. I want a king too. Notice how far their hearts get because uh, I don't want to mess this up because I'm going to get to that in a minute. But their hearts are drifting further and further. So he tells them God's anointed you as king. And, but with the anointing, like we talked about last night, when God has something for you to do, he's going to back it up with miracles, signs, and wonders. So he tells Saul that, okay, when you go, I want you to go down to the house of God, and I want you to, on your way, you're going to meet a band of prophets. And they're going to come playing and rejoicing and singing praises to God, and they're going to be prophesying. And when you connect with that spirit that I have put in them, then you're going to prophesy also. This is a man they never prophesied before. These folk went to prophet school. Yes, there was an Old Testament prophet school where the prophets went to learn how to answer God. But you can't go to school to figure out how to answer God. This thing got to be in you. So he sets him up here in verse number nine of First Samuel 10. And he says, and it was so that when he had turned his back to leave Samuel, that God gave him another heart and all those things and all those signs came to pass that day. The New English translation said, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his inmost person. And all the signs happened on that very day. But the Young's literal translation says, and it hath been at his turning his shoulder to go from Samuel, that God turneth to him another heart. So as Saul is answering the call of his life, and as he turns his shoulder, God is turning at the same time with a new heart for him. When you respond to the mercy and the grace of God, and I'm not just talking about original uh, conversion to Christianity and your trust in Christ. I'm talking about even in your walk with God because we go wayward and we have to turn again. This is why we talk about repentance is a gift and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Because repentance gives you the opportunity to get it right with God. It is the one thing that labeled David as a man after God's own heart. The repentful heart. Not because he could slay a lion and a, and a bear. Not because Saul has killed his thousand and David killed his ten thousand. He was a man after God's own heart because he had the knowledge and the ability to turn his heart back to God. 
So the process of heart renewal is indicated in various ways. It is the removal of a stony heart, and then the heart becomes clean, according to Psalm 51. The heart is fixed, according to Psalm 112, verse number 7. And it is fixed through the fear of the Lord. Paul brings it in and says, with the heart man believeth unto salvation. The power of God is exercised for renewal on the heart. So to God, the bereaved apostle prays as a knower of the heart, according to Acts 1 and 24. A word not known to the classical writers, but is found only here in the New Testament in Acts 15 and 8. So in the heart, God's spirit dwells with might. It's in the heart that he plants himself. So the heart is first. I know that in our text we read, Pharisees tries to trick them, well, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, the one who gave the law, says that the greatest commandment is that you love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. Now, I don't have time to get into the mind and the strength because I got a problem working just with the heart. And if the heart is wrong, then the mind and the strength won't matter at all. So the heart, not only is it first, but it's the deepest. Reference may be made to the use of the term heart for that which is innermost. It's hidden. It's deepest. In anything, because uh, Exodus talks about the heart of the seas, how they broke forth, the waters broke forth from the heart, from the depth, the deepest part of the sea. And then Jonah talks about being in the deep part of the ocean, not just the belly of the fish. He was in the belly of the fish, but the fish himself was in the deepest part of the ocean. The very center of things. Jesus talks about the son of man being in the heart of the earth. He was in the heart of the earth. The Bible says that he created the earth to be inhabited. So you just can't talk about just the physical earth, but the earth represents man. He created earth for man. So if he's in the heart of the earth, he, he's doing something in the deepest respect on behalf of the man that he created in his image and after his likeness. So Ephesians 3 and 14 says, when I think of the wisdom and scope of his plan, I fall down on my knees and pray to the father of all the great family of God, some of them already in heaven and some of them down on earth, that out of his glorious, unlimited resources, he will give you the mighty inner strengthening of his Holy Spirit. Verse 17, and I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living within you as you trust in him. May your roots go, go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. He's saying here, I'm praying that God would be welcome in the heart that he created. It's bad when you're supposed to have a place that's supposed to be called home. And you dread going there. You don't want to be there. I got to look at this woman. I had to look at this man. I had to deal with these kids. 
I just don't feel at home in my house. This is what God is saying. And this is why when he came to Jerusalem, the Bible says he looked over the city and it just began to weep. Because this is my house. And I don't feel welcome at all. These are my people and they don't want me. They couldn't care less about me. So he weeps. He weeps like a baby. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Only if your heart was ready for the visitation that I wanted to give you. But you, you, you missed your visitation. All the things that I'd set this up for, all the priesthood and the turtle doves and the lamb and the Egypt thing and the, the wilderness thing and the glory thing and the cloud and the fire and the, the whole burning the sacrifice and me coming down and revealing my glory to you. I set this up so that when I came, you would recognize who I am. If you stay away from somebody so long, you don't recognize when they actually show up. There's some folk that I've seen recently that I knew as a kid. If I passed them on the street, I wouldn't know them. It's because we've been separated for so long. Israel was separated from God for so long that they didn't recognize when the Christ was coming because they were selfish. Well, Lord, we ain't worried about no heavenly kingdom. I just want to know when we're going to have the power on earth. When are we going to get to rule some stuff? When is it going to be my turn? Like she quoted one of my favorite preachers, Bishop Young, said the desire to receive for oneself alone is Satan, Satan. The desire to receive for yourself alone is Satan. And that's all Israel wanted. We just want to know when we're going to get the power. And he said, I'm trying to give you the power. Because you can't have the physical power without it being in your heart first. So he says, verse number 18, and you may be able to feel and understand as all God's children should. How long, how wide, how deep and how high his love really is. And to experience this love for yourselves. This is not about the love that God showed my neighbor, my father, my grandfather, my great, great, great grandfather. But it's about the love that he wants to show me. And though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know the or understand it. And so at last you will be filled up with God himself. So the, what are you full of? Tonight, what are you full? Are you full of tradition? Are you full of pride? Are you full of self-aggrandizement? Self-promotion? It irks me to hear folk and always talk about it and put themselves out. I'm this and I'm that and I'm not. You know, I'm holy and I'm saved and I'm right. And I try to do everybody right. And I, I don't know why folk don't like me. I'm just trying to help. When God is on your side, you don't have to take defense like that. God will show folk who you are. And if they don't want to hear it, they got to keep stepping. The Bible says in Proverbs, it's not good for a man to sing his own praises. Say, let the other people do that. And when they don't do it, then maybe you ought to check yourself out and really see 
just how nice and sweet and gentle and saved and sanctified and giving and loving you are. Verse number 20, now glory be to God who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, and hopes. May he be given glory forever endeavored through the endless age because of his master plan of salvation for the church through Jesus Christ. So as the heart's owner, let's talk about the owner now. We know that the heart is first. We know that the heart is the deepest. Now let's talk about who the heart belongs to. Since God owns our hearts and he is the only one who can see our hearts for what they really are, he is the only one who can give a remedy for a damaged or faulty heart. First Samuel 16 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, now this is the same Samuel that he used to anoint Saul. When he anointed Saul, the Bible says that when Saul stood up, he stood head and shoulders above the rest. He looked like a man of stature. He, he looked like somebody that could be king. But when Saul was taken down and he said, Saul, the kingdom's being ripped from you. He said, I've given it to another man. So he sends the, the prophet down to, the, to David's father's house. He says, where are your sons? So he got all these sons. Right? He, he heard that the, that the prophet was coming. And so he got all his sons. Y'all go shower, get ready, get your good suits on. The prophet is coming. I know he's the, the next king is, is coming out of my house. And he looks and he goes through. He ain't it. He ain't it either. He ain't it. He ain't it. He ain't. And the prophet says, wait a second here. I know God sent me to this house. I know that what I'm looking for ought to be in this house. God knows what's in you. If he comes and tells you that my next anointing is in you, then trust it's there. It may be something you don't even think is there. So he says, is this it? Where are your sons? These are my sons. No, no, no. This is the. He said, where are your sons? He said, oh, I got one more. Somebody go get David. His father. His own daddy. The modern day. You ain't going to be nothing. We're going to put it in, in 2010 terms. You, you just like your daddy. You ain't, you ain't going to amount to nothing. This is what some, some parents tell their kids. You, you just a spoiled brat. And we speak that stuff into the spirit and then wonder why at 17, 18, they're just watching, sitting around watching Bugs Bunny. Because we have put that in the spirit. But David was out there doing what God was about to anoint him to do. He was already giving God glory out there. He was out there playing his harp, rejoicing and doing the job that he had to do. And he was stinky and dirty and sweaty from doing his job. And when he comes, the, the prophet says, that's the one. The one that didn't have time to even prepare for the prophet to come. Some of you came here and didn't even know what to expect. And when you got here, God said, that's what I'm looking for. 
That's the brokenness that I want. That's the cry that I'm looking for. Now I can, I can pour this on you. Because when you turned your heart to come, God also started turning his heart, making a new one for you. So he tells Samuel, he said, listen here. He said, don't judge by a man's face or height, for this is not the one. But this is the brother that went to the Bible school. He went to Bible college. He got his doctorate in theology. This is not the one. But his, his granddaddy was, was a preacher. His daddy is a preacher. His uncles are all deacons. His mother's on the, on, the more, it's on the mother's board. That ain't the one. I'm looking for somebody that's going to do stuff a little different. So he tells Samuel, I don't make decisions the way you do. Men judge the outward appearance. But I look at the man's thoughts and intentions. The Holman Christian Standard Version says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. So the best thing that we can do is go to the one who can read the hearts. If you have a document that you need translated. It may be, say, somebody gives you a very special, they say, this is a special document. You got to read and follow everything that's in here. And you open it up and say, okay, I'm going to make sure I do it. But it's, it's written in Latin. You go, well, I don't speak Latin. You have to find somebody that is able to read it and translate it and tell you what, what, what's in it. You got to take your heart to God so he can tell you what's in it. So he can show you what's really in there. And when he tells you, believe what he says. Yes. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, the word of God is quick, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow or the marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, we all know in here that Jesus is the incarnate word. God that reads the heart made himself flesh. He, he came and realized and placed himself in the circumstances that we would be found. All of the circumstances that break our heart, he subjected himself to the same heartbreak. To look out and see, man, I know what it feels to be unwanted. I know what it feels to be unloved. I know what it feels like to be taken advantage of and cheated and lied on and spit upon and slapped and killed. I know what it's like to have your heart broken in such a way that I'm just sweating tears of blood now. So we can't. Say, oh, the Lord would never understand what I'm going to because he's God. You know, if he wanted to change the situation, he could just snap his finger and change the situation. But he subjected himself to the laws of the universe. 
He didn't step out of bounds. He said, I could call legions of angels if I wanted to. But I want to I want to know how Angela feels. I want to know what, what Jason is feeling. I don't want to come down from this cross. My, my flesh wants to. But my heart is saying I, I've got a people to change. And if I want to change their heart, I got to know what their heart is going through. Psalm 7 and 9 says, end all wickedness, O Lord, and bless only who truly worship God. For you, the righteous God, look deep within the hearts of men and examine all their motives and their thoughts. Verse one, one thing that we have to stop doing is judging people's motives. All of us have probably said, I know what they think. I know that they, they, they only doing this to do such and such and such and such. I, I know, I know. <laughs> and we, we say it with so much confidence. Oh, they just doing that to, do, to, to spite me. You know, they just doing that because they trying to work. They, you don't know the motives. You're judging the actions. God knows the motive. That's why we ought to take that stuff to God. <laughs> say, Lord, I don't know what their design is. But I know that I'm in your hand. And as long as I'm in your hand, I have nothing to worry about. They can plot. They can talk. They can threaten. They can do all they want. But if, if God before you, nobody in the world can be against you and prosper. When you get into the place where you think about what people are thinking, what people are saying, where folks are going, who they talking to, who they talking about. Your heart is with that person. But your heart has deceived you into thinking, my heart is with God. Your heart's not with God. Your heart is on who you focus all your attention on. If you sit and boohoo over what that person's doing to you, what they've done to you, instead of turning to God and say, look, I got this problem. On my hand, I'm in this test, I'm in this trial, and I'm turning to you. I'm not going to worry about why they're doing what they're doing and who they told what to. I'm going to give it to you and trust that you'll pay your recompense because of what's in their heart. That's hard to do. I'm saying it, and it sounds good coming off my lips. Now, I'm going to take this thing to the Lord. But when you get there, Y'all going to have to come back to October 16th and say, okay, man, now, now it's time to really put this thing in action. He says in Psalm 26 and 1, dismiss all the charges against me, Lord, for I have tried to keep your laws and have trusted you without wavering. He says, cross-examine me, O Lord, and see that this is so. Test my motives and affections too. He's saying here, test my motives and test my affections. Many of us like to go, Lord, this is my motive and this is my affection. But we're, we'll be in much better standing if we say, Lord, you tell me what my motive and my affection is. Because after all, my heart is deceitful and I can't know it. He says, cross-examine me. That means that there was a first examination. If you think of a courtroom, the, before the cross-examination, there's already been an initial examination. But what was the initial examination? 
we see we read too fast. Read 26 and 1 again. Dismiss all the charges against me, O Lord. Then he says, I've tried to keep your laws. So he's examining himself now. He's put himself on the witness stand and is questioning himself. Where were you the night of, of June 4th? Well, on the night of June 4th, I was at, you know, Burger King, you know, with my, with my friends. Well, what were you doing at 10 o'clock that night? Well, well but some, at some point, somebody's got to come and challenge that testimony. So he, he didn't give it to his enemies to say, what do you think about it? He turns to God and says, Lord, you cross-examine me. I know that I've stated my case and I've told you I've tried to keep your law and I've tried to give, uh, live upright before you. But now what do you think that I've done? Sometimes we don't want to hear what the Lord thinks. Because the Lord will tell you, I think you're selfish, you're immature, and it's time for you to grow up. Hey, that's what he told me. He told you too. See, all right, we serve the same God. So I've already come to the conclusion of myself. Now I need the first opinion. <laughs> Y'all didn't get to catch that. I've already told myself who I am. But now, Lord, I need a first opinion. We call it a second opinion. But he's first. <laughs> you were the second opinion. And when he gives an opinion, there's no need for a second opinion. Now, let's talk about love for a minute. The commandments that were given to Israel the first time was not attached to the commandment, which would capsulate all the other laws and commandments of the prophets. I had to look at the scripture when he asked the Pharisee asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus says, love the Lord your God. Wait a second. That wasn't even a command. That wasn't part of the Ten Commandments. You know why? Because remember, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that when God came to you with the commandments, he wasn't talking to the first generation. He was talking to you that are alive right now. And this is why in Deuteronomy 6, then he gives the real command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He didn't tell the first generation that because he knew they couldn't fulfill it. So now the real command comes out to us. This new command brings in the love factor. Attached to this new love is a jealous God. You have to read Exodus chapter 20. He tells them, even with the first generation, I'm a jealous God. So when he says I'm a jealous God, he's presenting them here. With relationship, once again, we meet God as jealous. The Hebrew word portrays a very strong emotion, even a passionate desire. In a negative sense, the emotion is directed against another person with jealousy. When it is directed to an object, it is called envy. But there is a positive aspect when the Old Testament speaks of God's jealousy. In this case, jealousy is intense love. It is a high level of commitment that demands expression in a relationship with excludes all others. This is a monogamous relationship. In other words, God is obsessed with you. We take that word jealousy and we've 
we've seen the 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 uh, movie Obsession and in the other uh, movie Obsessed, and we see some crazy stuff going on when somebody becomes fixated on somebody that they can't have, or somebody that doesn't want them. This is how God presented His love to me. I'm jealous for you. You're with this other person, but I can't stop thinking about you. You dancing with my enemy, but I can't stop thinking about you. So I stalk you. God's been stalking us, following us where we go. When we're out on our date with the devil, he's there peering through the window while you're having your stake with his enemy. That's what jealous means. He's a jealous God over you. The nature of the love relationship. There's five points here. Number one, love is personal. You'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And most of these are going to come from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Love is personal. God's covenant is with us who are the living right now, not with the saints of old. Number two, love is urgent. That's found in verses 4 through 14. This is evident by the first four of the commandments. God wants our eyes fixed on him. The first four commandments, the first half of the commandments are about how you are to view and to respond to God. The second half is how you are to in turn respond to your fellow man. But if your commitment to God is out of line, you ain't going to treat your fellow man right either. So as any lover, God is unwilling to share our affection with competitors. Number three, love is demonstrated. Verse number 15, love that lets us feel our belongingness must be demonstrated. God had clearly demonstrated to this generation his personal and practical involvement with them. God brought you out of here, out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Number four, love is expressive. Verses 16 through 20. It is hard to feel loved when we don't really know what is going on inside of a person who claims to love us. I got to say that again for me. It's hard to feel loved when we don't really know what is going on inside of the person who claims to love us. In this restatement of the Ten Commandments, we see God's willingness to communicate his expressions. That's what this is all about. This is about communication. This is not about a hammer dropping down on you. This is about, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. But before I can do that, we got to reason. We got to talk to one another here. The woman with the issue of blood from last night, the Bible says that when he says, who touched me? And they said, are you crazy? All these people touching you? He said, no, this is a virtue that just left me. I know somebody touched me. And then she confessed. She said, the Bible says she told him all her heart. She got healed, not because she touched the hem of his garment, but because Her heart touched his heart. And then they had communication. 
So we have to know what's going on in the heart. We have to know what the person that's claiming to love us is all about. Love communicates and expresses. Love desires a response. So when there's lack of communication and you cannot come to that place to where you can express yourself in relationship, then what is the foundation of that relationship? This is why we in a mess with relationships today, because the heart is not in it. In fact, the only reason God gave them divorce, well, Moses gave them divorce. God didn't give them divorce. The only reason Moses gave them divorce, Jesus said it was because the hardness of your heart. Because you guys didn't know how to open up to one another and, 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 and get to know one, one another for who you really are. And when I try to express myself, you reject it. So love desires a response. What is even more significant for us in our relationship with God is this. God wants to help us grow in our own capacity to love. As we saw earlier, these manwork commandments are rooted in God's own concern for men. As we listen to him and respond to his law, we grow in our ability to love others. This is an important thing to see. Anybody that loves somebody else desires to see them grow. If you're in a relationship with somebody that they are comfortable with you in a stagnant position, they don't love you. Any parent that wants to keep their little child at two years old, cute and nice and cuddly, they don't want to see that child progress through life. That's a bad parent. That's a selfish parent. So anybody you love, you want to see them grow. And that's what relationship is about. It's about growing old together. Friendship. Mother and daughter. Father and son. Parent and children. Husband and wife. It's all about learning each other and growing old. This is what God wants for us. So, but we can be utterly sure that God loves us because his every word to us is designed to help us grow to our full potential. So if you love the person and you have a desire to see them grow, then you will facilitate the tools for that to happen. Number five, love is unselfish. Deuteronomy 5 and 21. God enters into a relationship with us and speaks to us that it might go well with us. Verse 33 tells us, you shall walk in all the way of the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So Moses lays out all that God had done for them and will continue to do in a mutually committed love affair. He has our best interest at heart. And like Natalie always hones in on, when he came to Eve, the thing that the devil wanted to do was cause Eve. He didn't come and say, you shouldn't love God. He didn't come to Eve and say, oh, don't listen to him. He don't know what he's talking about. Are you really sure that, you know, he's got your best interest at heart? And once you doubt that, once you're in a relationship and you decide, I don't think this person is really with me. Guess what? You start closing up. And throughout our lives, because of the misquotation of scripture, the misrepresentation of scripture, we have questioned God's motives for us and we've closed ourselves to him. 
Like I said today, we saw a new heart, a heart that it closed to God. I meant for my heart to close to you. But in my closing my heart to you, I closed my heart to God. Why? Because the law of love was working in reverse. Just like it comes from God to man in the reverse order. If I close my heart to man, I'm closing my heart to God. This is why he says, this is how God would, people will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have one another. Don't claim to love me. You can't love nobody else. So perhaps your parents or your spouse have never let you know how deeply you are loved. Perhaps they haven't truly cared. But through Christ, you can have a personal relationship with God himself in which you are loved and do belong. Personally, urgently, practically, expressively, unselfishly. God himself says to you and I in this room tonight, you are loved. So the Bible says he warns against the heart in these capacities. Write these scriptures down. He warns against a double heart. Proverbs 12 and 2. Can't have a double heart. Can't be in love with two people. You can't love God and man. You either serve one, hate the other, or cling to the one and let go of the other. Number two, God warns against a hard heart. There's a lot of things that can harden your heart. You can harden it yourself just because you don't want a relationship with God. Or things can transpire in your life to where over time... The heart becomes hardened. But you know what? It's so deceitful. The heart still says, I'm on fire for the Lord. But you don't even know my heart is hardened before the Lord. He can't penetrate this old rocky thing. So Proverbs 18 and 4, 28 and 14 warns against a hard heart. Proverbs 21 and 4 warns against a proud heart. Hebrews 3 and 12 warns against an unbelieving heart. Matthew 24 and 12 warns against a cold heart. And Psalm 51 and 10 warns against an unclean heart. So for the last scripture, let's read Proverbs 4 and 23. It says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The Living Bible Translation says, above all else, Guard your affections or guard your heart, for they influence everything else in your life. Another version says, guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. It is where life springs up. If your heart is not right, the life won't spring up. If we ask why the heart is chosen rather than the understanding, the judgment, or memory, we find our answer in the fact that the understanding may be always subject to circumstances or may be enfeebled by disease. The judgment may be in error and the memory may fail. There are three reasons why the heart is chosen. I'm talking about the heart. Number one, a pathological reason. It is the fountain of life through which the blood passes to be distributed to every part of the system. Stop the heart and death follows. 
Why? Because the heart pumps the blood. And when we love God with all our heart, and then we turn around and love our fellow man as much as we love ourselves, the blood of Jesus can flow through the body of Christ. If we stop our heart, the body dies. If we, because we've stopped our heart, we've stopped operating in our gifts. When we stop operating in our gifts, the body is no longer edified. It dies. This is why Jesus says he looked out and he said, these are people like they're scattered. They have no shepherd. There's nothing to keep them together. There's nothing to give life to them. The heart keeps the blood flowing through the body of Christ. Number two, the heart is the region of sensibility. When the great passions of hope and fear and love and hate and joy and sorrow take hold of a man, he realizes the sensation in the region of the heart. When you see somebody, and, and I guess I'll go to courtship. When you see that person you're dating and you're all in love and infatuated, you can kind of feel your heart kind of speed up a little bit. When you're in a dark place and something jumps out at you and scares the bejeebas out of you, your heart starts pounding. All of that stuff is connected to the heart. So when stuff just happens in your life, boom, death of a loved one. God is going to say, I want, what is your heart going to do? Are you going to turn your heart away from me because you lost a loved one? They scandalized my name. What is your heart going to do to that? My, my wife, she cheated on me. I got a right to, to pay her back. I, I, I can, you know, I'm, I'm a sue. I'm taking her to court. I'm going to try to get everything he got. I'm going to take, take him for every penny he got. What is your heart doing? How is, your, is that going to affect your heart with God? I'm not saying you can't do that, but you got a question. Everything that happens in your life, remember the heart is deceitful. It doesn't want you to realize that everything that happens in your life affects how your heart responds to God. We missed the big picture. Number three, the intellect is controlled by the heart more than the heart is controlled by the intellect. Men do not follow their thinking. Men follow their feelings, their heart. Yet there are teachers proclaiming a religion of pure intellect, excluding the passions or feelings of the soul. But God gave us a Christianity that appeals to the emotions. He appeals to your heart. It's not mechanical. He doesn't want a mechanical church. Trust me. Look mostly through the United States and you see all the mechanical churches. Some of us have been a part of some. And tell me what you see. Did you feel love? It's all in the experience. Some of us, we just chose to close our eyes. Why? Because the heart is deceitful. And it tricked us into saying, I know they treat me wrong, but these are God's people. They love the Lord. Your heart is deceitful. And you can't know it. The only one that can tell you that, whether it's right or wrong, is God. 
But we've allowed man to tell us whether our heart was right or wrong. They can't read your heart. You can have all the approval of, of everybody around you. And they could think, man, they could speak swelling words. If you die, man, we could preach your funeral. And man, that was a good person. They loved their kids. There might be one person out there. You could, you could go to funerals. You could see the people that knew him. That wasn't him. But God is the one that knows the most. So the keeping of the heart. We are not to destroy our appetites and passions. But to keep them in subordination. Desire is attached to the heart. You don't kill desire. The word rapture is in the Old Testament, if you didn't know. It's in it in this vein. He says, delight thyself in the Lord. That word delight means shasha. It means rapture, to be caught up in. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Well, if I'm caught up in the Lord and I don't have any desires, then he has nothing to give me. I have to have desires for him to give. So when we lose our desire, like last night, do you even desire healing anymore? Do you desire deliverance? If you don't desire it, you empty the Lord's hands. So vigilance is the price of everything good and great in the earth or heaven. Nothing but unceasing watchfulness can keep the heart in harmony with God's heart. So he says, guard your heart. Guard it. Don't let filth get in there. And the one thing about anybody ever been attacked by email virus? It ruins your whole computer. And do you know what, the, what even the, the people that write the antivirus software say about it? Any computer that has ever been affected by a virus can no longer be trusted. Because it gets down into the hidden parts of your operating system. And it knows how to hide itself even from the best detectors. So the best and the most safe way to get a, ant a virus out of your computer where you know that your computer is, is safe again is to do what they call a restore. And it'll put it back to the original state of when you got it. Do you know that when you got the Holy Ghost, he put you in the state to where he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. He took you to the beginning. He restored it. That's why he says that we were saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing, the restoration of the life of God. So tonight I, I ask us to examine our hearts. Not according to my sister, my brother, my father, my mother, my child, but according to God's vision. How does he see my heart? And as I said, when he tells you what's in there, believe him and then start communicating to him. And say, Lord, I've become marred in your hand. I know that when you started this work in me, I knew that you had in your mind it was going to be magnificent. It was going to be glorious. It was going to be stupendous. It was going to be everything that you designed in your mind. 
But while I was in your hand, my heart got diverted somewhere else and I became marred. I lost the image that you had in your mind for me. Now I'm asking you to just make me over again. A new lump. It's the same clay, but what he has to do is to put some more water on it. See, one thing about the anointing, the anointing does not flow. The, the anointing and the Holy Ghost is depicted as liquid. It's not solid. It's liquid. He'll be in you a well of water. Peace like a river. The Holy Ghost was poor. You can't pour. You, know, you can pour rocks, but the, the idea that it, it is liquid to be poured out. And the reason it's liquid is because it's meant to flow. It's meant to flow from the top to the bottom. The anointing oil that they poured on Saul and that they poured on Moses it, and Aaron, it was poured on top of the head and it started to work its way down. He anointed Christ. And when he poured that anointing on Christ to be the redemption of our salvation, guess what? That anointing oil now has to start trickling down to the rest of the body. He said he opened up the waters of heaven. When he flooded the earth. But not only that, he opened up the fountains of the deep. So as he poured on top, the, 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 that which was in the earth started to pour itself out. So as he's pouring, you've got to pour your heart out too. The Bible says, pour your heart out to God. Cry unto him. Give it up to him. <laughs> 